Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, we will begin with a time in the Word of God in chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 in our scripture reading. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. It is the last book of the Bible that is written about Jesus, which God gave to him, verse 1, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, penned by, recorded, I should say, by the Apostle John. And here in chapter 2, we will be reading through verse 17 a letter that is to be circulated among the seven churches there in Asia Minor. This morning we will be looking at three of those churches, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, the book of Revelation. It reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. For this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
but I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for these words these words which come from you, these words which, Lord, grant to us insight as to what pleases you in your church. So we ask once again, Father, open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the past couple of months, as many of you know, I've been on sabbatical. It's been a long time since I've stood here to preach and As many of you know, the Lord's timing is perfect. After returning from Honduras, my father became very ill, and it was a wonderful time for me to minister to my family and to provide for uh, them and to help them at the passing of my father. But on Sundays, I would look at uh, attending at least two to three different churches, two two to three different worship services every week, just to see what is out there in the greater Seattle area. And it was rather fascinating. I went to worship, to learn, to meet brothers and sisters in the Christ, to see what can be done to improve how they do things, etc. It wasn't my intention at all to be critical or to be judgmental in all. I don't think that's a good attitude in going into a church. Uh, I'd rather just not go to that if I already know what is being taught there. But I went to learn, to be blessed, and I attended all sorts of different churches, Attended some churches that I agreed with theologically and others that I didn't agree with theologically. I attended some churches that were dispensational, some that were covenantal, some that were charismatic, some that were non-charismatic, some that were liberal, some that were more conservative. I attended churches that were size of 35 people to over 3,000 people. Attended churches and met in schools, to one that met in a movie theater, to ones that had beautiful facilities. Churches that worshipped with a simple piano or a simple single guitar with a laptop next to them, churches that were simple like that, to churches that had a million-dollar organ in the back, churches that were really rocking out with long-haired tattoo guitarists, to churches that had a full praise band and smoke coming out the ceiling and on the stage. I visited churches that were friendly and churches that I went to sometimes and no one even cared to say hi. Churches where you would go and sometimes I'd, I'd often try to be anonymous, but then sometimes I ran into friends who knew friends and they would say hi and I'd get caught up meeting people and seeing people I hadn't seen for 25 years and reconnecting. It was a good time. Churches and more churches and more churches that served coffee. 
and more churches served coffee, some that served Arnold Palmer iced tea, flavored coffee, iced coffee, all sorts of wonderful things. Churches where the sermon was biblical and churches that had terrible Bible teaching. Some that did a good job explaining the biblical texts, one sermon that was very political in nature. And the quality of the sermon wasn't even in relationship to how the person dressed. Some were, you know, had a suit and tie, others had professional casual, to others who had a t-shirt and who knew what else, full of tattoos. Some pastors that I knew, others pastors that I didn't know, and some pastors I didn't really care to know. Many didn't have a Sunday school. Some churches were very well organized and churches that were not organized. Churches that had a demographic that was predominantly older or elderly and other churches that had a predominantly younger or collegiate young adult crowd. Some churches that were mono-ethnic, some that were multi-ethnic. From some children's ministries that were very well organized, that had really cool slides where if you had a five-year-old or a third grader, you go to a little door and they slide down into the second floor where their classroom was, depending upon their age. And that had nice cutouts with, uh, you know, those bears that use a chainsaw to cut out that would say hi. And churches where I had no idea where the kids were. And if I had a kid, I didn't know where to take them. Some churches I walked away with a great sense of worship. Some churches that I walked away with a sense of joy from the fellowship that I had. And other churches where I walked away with a Starbucks gift card for visiting. And those were nice too. But in and of themselves, there's really nothing wrong with some of these things, really. Some of these things, in fact, there were a number of very practical things that I saw, a number of practical things that I learned, and a number of practical things that I thought about that we could improve here. And I can see how some things drew certain demographics, and I thought to myself, hmm, how would God evaluate some of these churches? Certainly, it's not dependent upon the quality of their coffee, as some might evaluate. Uh, do I like chairs or pews, or what's their facility like, or how organized is their children's ministry? No, those aren't the fundamental things that God would be asking if Jesus were to visit a church, whether or not they had smoke on the stage, or whether or not the person was dressed up or not. The fundamental question are, that, that really comes to my mind is, what are the characteristics of a church that pleases God. And I thought about that as I visited each different church, seeking to be blessed by the Word of God, by the worship, by the fellowship of His people in different contexts. And I asked myself, what would be the characteristics as are reflected upon all these churches? What are the characteristics of churches that please God? What are the things that bring honor and glory to God, that help the worshiper bring honor and glory to God? Because an outward evaluation from a Rather, a human standpoint would be, well, how beautiful is their facility or what kind of programs do they have or how is their membership or what's the quality of music or what is the amount of offering that they get each week? What can meet my needs? As some might look at various churches. The question at hand, though, is what does the Scripture say when we look at a church? Because we desire to be a church that if Jesus were to come in, that we would want to have God smile upon our services, our church, the people who are here. The book of Revelation, Jesus writes, and he writes 
where God writes this letter that is going to be circular, that will go to seven churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. And these seven churches, there are commendations that he gives, things that he is pleased with. There are condemnations, things that he is very displeased with, and then encouragements and correction that he gives to each of these churches. And I thought this would be a wonderful profile for us to see what pleases God in a church. What is God pleased with when he looks down upon the church in the things that they do or don't do? And granted, we might even look into the pastoral epistles as well as the entire New Testament as what God is pleased with. But here, there are things that are specifically stated of what he commends about a church and what he condemns about churches. And in this particular passage, in chapters 2 and 3, in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches. These were seven actual churches that exist. And they're ruins you can go and visit today in Turkey. You can go and visit today. These were seven actual churches that existed in the New Testament times. These are not seven eras of times. No, these are seven real churches that have characteristics that I believe we can take away and learn what is important to God, what is important to God in the churches that he looks down at. Here, the Lord gives his commendations, and he gives his condemnations to each church. We see here what pleases God, what displeases God. And as you look at each of these letters, and we will be looking at three of them this morning, the message to the church at Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, you'll notice in the very first line of each of these verses, 1, 8, and 12, it all begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, to the angel of the church that in Smyrna, write, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Now, this particular word, as we just draw out a context for us to understand. This word angel is the word angelos, and it can be generically translated as messenger, as messenger. And the question that comes up is, is this an actual angel, an angelic being, or is it perhaps a messenger or a human leader of the church, such as an elder or pastor or whatnot? Most of your Bibles perhaps translate it as angel, and it leads you to believe that it is an angelic being, but I take it in a different view. I see this as a messenger. And part of the reason is this, a number of reasons, is that in the New Testament, number one, never does the New Testament teach that an angel or angels are involved in leading the church. These are people who are over the church, who are seen to be over the church, who are going to be uh, those who are involved in the leadership of the church in some way. And in many of these letters that we see in the book of Revelation, these seven letters, there are commands to repent of sin, to turn from their wickedness. And these aren't the commands that would be given to an angel who would be inclusive of the leadership of the church. Five of the seven letters are, are rebukes for tolerating sin or contained in them. And, but I think it's also odd if God were to be communicating a letter to John, a human vehicle, he would give this letter and the message would go to an angelic being who would once again communicate it to human people within the church of what God thinks of their church. I mean, whenever we see an angelic being who is presented in the Bible, it is God who communicates with that angel who will communicate with people rather than the odd way that 
some might have it here if they were to take that as some angelic being. So I take that angel as an individual who is a human messenger of some type. It could be the pastor, it could be the leader, whoever it might be, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? And then we see ourselves seeing these three churches. And these three churches that we will look at this morning will have characteristics of which God commends and God condemns. And the first church we see is the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this would be the church that one might say or describe as the church that lost its first love. The church that lost its first love. Here he begins and he commends them. He commends them of a number of things, and then he will have a condemnation. But just to draw for you a backdrop as to this particular city and this particular church, this church was in the city of Ephesus. It was a major city. It was perhaps the most important city during that time in Asia Minor, numbering a quarter million to a half a million people, about three times the size of Bellevue, if you can imagine that. And here he writes this letter to them, And this letter to them is going to be one of encouragement, but they had lost their first love. Oftentimes it had been dissuaded or distracted perhaps by the fact that Ephesus was the home of one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. Temple of Diana was a, was a huge temple, a magnificent temple in which people would come and they would gather, they would flock there, not only to worship a foreign god, but they would come to do business. And so there were priests there, there were prostitutes there, but there were also bankers there. In addition, when you have prostitution and you have uh, all sorts of immorality, there were criminals who would gather there, there were dancers, wild worshipers, and all of that that would gather there in the city. And it would be so easy for the Christians there to struggle against some of the idolatry that was there. But yet it was Paul who had planted a church there, who was then followed up by a very powerful preacher called Apollos. And after that, he would be, that church would be pastored by young Timothy, a protege of Paul. Yet the message of the gospel continued to powerfully impact the people and the church began to flourish The church began to flourish, and that was 40 years before this time that we come to here. And he commends them, first of all, in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. I know your deeds, your toil, and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put them to the test. They are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Yet this you do have, verse 6, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. A number of things that he commends them for, and the first is listed here. They were a hard-working church. Your toil, that particular word means that they labored. They labored to the point of exhaustion. That's what it meant. They served God. They were people who were doing the work of ministry. They weren't pew warmers. They weren't people who just came to watch how things were going on and say, well, you know what? I got something out of that. I'm going to leave and whatever. No, they were involved in the life of the church. They were toiling for the sake of God. They were working and doing the work of the ministry. They were giving above and beyond to the point of exhaustion. Each and every day, they'd lay their heads on their pillow thinking, about the things perhaps that they had done for the Lord. Unlike many churches, 
which are characterized by a small minority who do the majority of the work. I'm thankful that it's not like that here at this church, but I think it could be better because God has called us to be hardworking for the sake of the ministry. He's called us to serve and use our gifts for the sake of the ministry. And the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church served the Lord to further the gospel. They were a hardworking church, and they're commended for that. There's nothing wrong with that. Secondly, they were a persevering church. They were a persevering church. It states that their toil and perseverance, they had difficult circumstances. They had difficult circumstances, and yet they remained faithful. And the motive is given there. They, had, they were persevering, and they cannot tolerate evil men. They endured, it says, for my name's sake. For my name's sake. That's why they stuck it out. That's why they worked so hard. It was for the name of God. They stuck it out because they wanted God to be honored. They didn't work because they were guilty. They didn't work because they didn't want to seem like a failure. They didn't work and persevere because they were, you know, vested in the life of the church per se. But it was because of the name of God. They didn't want God not to be glorified. They wanted to preserve the reputation of God. They wanted to make God's name great. That's why they persevered. And thirdly, they were discerning. They were discerning. They were discretionary whom they allowed to teach. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which some think are perhaps uh, also mentioned in 2.15 in the church at Pergamum. There's some thought as to who that was. Some think it was one of the first seven deacons that had gone astray or one of their disciples that had gone astray. We really don't know. There's not much there. But they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And they were discerning about that. Many years prior to this letter being written, when Paul was on his way to Rome in that last journey, he stops off at Miletus, and in Acts chapter 20, he calls the Ephesian elders to come meet him at Miletus. This was back when he had uh, first planted the church, and he had, he had a number of years later on that he spent at the church, and now he's on his way to Rome, back to Rome, to trial, and he calls the leaders of the Ephesian church, the elders there, and this is what he tells him in Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. He stops off at Miletus while he's on his way to Rome to give them this warning. When I leave, there's going to be people who will come in, and they will be false teachers. They will bring with them other teachings in which they will draw people away. Don't allow that to happen. And they were discerning. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which they also hate, and they were discerning people. They were hardworking. They were persevering. They were discerning. Those are the good things about the church at Ephesus. But there was a condemnation, and it's in verse 4. But I have this against you that you have left your first love, that you have left your first love. 
Now, some might say this might have been the first love that they might have for one another or whatnot. I don't think so. I think this has to do with their love for God. Their love for God, which was the greatest commandment of all, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, Mark 12.30. But they had forgotten it, or they had let it wane, or they had let it die. That's important for a church. A church is to be made up of people who genuinely love God, who genuinely love God as their first priority. Because there are a number of implications of a heart that loves God, of people who desire to love God and pursue God. Those that genuinely love God are are genuine believers. You cannot love God unless you are a genuine believer. Better to have a church of 50 than a church of 5,000 if the 50 truly love God. Another implication of those who love God is that if you genuinely love God, you genuinely will bring glory and honor to God. Your desire is not for yourself or to please yourself or to feed your own ego by whatever happens. Your genuine desire is to bring honor and glory to God if you love God with all of your heart. Another implication, in addition to being a genuine believer, bringing honor to God is that you'll desire to serve God. You'll desire to serve God just like parents who genuinely love their children. They will go to extreme ends to protect them. They will spend time with them. They will invest in them. They will invest of their resources to raising their children because you love your children and they think of their children all of the time and they serve their families so willingly. Why? Because they love their families. And then so too, too, we are to love God, that our thoughts are to be geared about how can I bring honor and glory to God because I love Him and I want Him to be made great, that His name might be made great. The question for you and I is, do you have that love for God that you had experienced perhaps years ago still? Have you lost your first love that he speaks of here in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love? Because a lot of Christians might be like that. Remember the days when you would look forward to spending time with God in the mornings? Remember the days, perhaps, when you couldn't wait to go to church to worship God because everything was fresh, everything was so new, everything was so alive, perhaps, because God was working in your heart. You were desirous to walk with God. You were desirous to see God do things through and in you. But maybe the fuel tank has begun to run dry. This church had all the right tools, the right teaching. They were discerning. They had trained people around them, but that love for God just wasn't there. The solution to their problem. Sometimes when we face that, we think the solution is, well, my goodness, it's because I don't have friends or the music is poor or the parents, it's my parents' fault or I don't care for my Sunday school teacher or whatever it might be. The problem is not that. The problem for their heart's love for God and their passion for God is sin in the heart. 
is sin in the heart. And how do we know? Verse 5 tells us the solution. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. I'm coming to you to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you do, unless you repent. You don't repent unless there's sin to repent from. There is sin that has sapped the love that is in the heart for God. Luis Palau writes in his book, Say Yes in Renewing Your Spiritual Passion, a number of areas in which our love for God, our passion for God can be drained. And he says it can be unconfessed sin and can be moral indifference being absorbed with self, repeating gossip, harboring unbelief, an ungrateful spirit, feeling resentful, making petty complaints, neglecting giving, ignoring recurring sins, lacking true joy, engaging in sexual impurity, or hanging on to bitterness. All of those things sap our passion, our love for God. All of those things need to be repented of because they are areas of sin that sap away our heart and our love for God. Maybe it's a lack of priority to pursue God. Whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, God desires we be a church that loves Him with all of our heart. We take stock in our own life and say, How does it measure up? When God looks at our own heart, would he say this about you and I? Church that pleases God, first of all, when God looks down, is a church full of people that genuinely love God first. That genuinely love the Lord first. Secondly, he looks at the church of Smyrna, this little church, This little church could be described as one that perseveres under suffering. Church that perseveres under suffering. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy, verse 9, by those who say they are Jews and are not. Here, the Lord Jesus looks with empathy upon this church. A church under persecution and a church under poverty. Church under persecution and a church under poverty. The name Smyrna, the name of this city is the name that means bitter, it means myrrh, it was used for embalming a body, and it's indicative, perhaps a good description of this particular church. The idea of death was simply fitting, perhaps, because all around it was death. Smyrna itself was a very wealthy city. It was a very wealthy and a very beautiful city. It was well paved with streets that were, had natural beauty from its surrounding. It was the chief cities, was the most beautiful of the cities that were around there. Now, Ephesus and Pergamum weren't far away. Ephesus and Pergamum weren't far away. They were much more prominent, but Smyrna was much more beautiful. But even though it was more beautiful on the outside with streets that were beautiful and and the greenery and all of that, it was blackened on the inside because of idolatry, primarily from two different sources. One was that of just outright idolatry, the worship of foreign gods, and secondly, the idolatry that came because they were required to worship the emperor. In that particular city, there was a street, a street 
of gold, called the street of gold. And one end of the street of gold that was there was the temple of Zeus. And on the other end of the street of gold was the temple of Cybele, also known as the temple of, uh, the, temple of the, uh, the Greek god of, called Nemesis, the god of retribution. And all along that street, there, was another, there were other temples, the temple of Apollos, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Asclepius. It was all full of these temples and the worship of these foreign gods lined up. And I'm sure as that little church was there, they looked at these beautiful buildings, these beautiful temples. It didn't have something like Ephesus, which had the big temple of Diana, but still, I'm sure they were beautiful compared to this little group here that was being persecuted. Full, full of idolatry. But there was also the second false area of religion, which was emperor worship, emperor worship. And because of that, because Christians would not bow to worship other gods, they faced persecution. They faced suffering. And Christ writes about that. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Do not fear what you are about to suffer And he says that they will be tested. This is coming. You think you're suffering tribulation now? Yes, I know. And it will be coming in the future. We have it perhaps very easy here. When I was um, 18, I remember going on my first mission trip. I went away and I went by myself because I thought to myself, if if the Lord wants me to be a missionary, I'd Better not make it easy. I just want to, I don't want to go with a team. I want to go and join OMF, Overseas Mission Fellowship, because I wanted to see if the Lord would have me in the mission field at that time. And one of my desires at the end of that time that I was serving, it was like week number seven or something like that, I desired to go in and see the underground church in China. I remember after gotten across the border and hopped into this unmarked van where there was other Christians who would take me to see the underground church or the persecuted church in China, we rode away. And it's still etched in my memory how we would drive along the countryside and how they would tell me about the churches. And I would go and visit various pastors and leaders and hearing their stories and seeing where they would meet and hearing about the secrecy by which they had to meet because of the fear of the government. This was some 30 years ago or so. And I still remember one of the, the words of, of the last church leader that I met with because they were talking about where they met and the resources that were needed. And he said to me these words that I'd never, ever forgotten. He said, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. Yeah, I've never forgotten over the years I've had the opportunity to meet Christians who were beaten for their faith, who were choked for their faith, who have been threatened with execution, whose families had to run because of their faith in Christ. And those are the ones, those are the ones who are the examples to me, the ones who are willing to truly suffer for his name's sake because of who and what they were living for is worth dying for. That's this church in Smyrna. This church in Smyrna is willing to suffer for the name of Christ. They're suffering because of the persecution, but they're also suffering because of poverty. But Christ reminds them. You can imagine a church that was suffering because of the, of the persecution, 
not having a whole lot of physical resources. And Christ reminds them that it is not. It is not about the physical resources. They were actually rich, spiritually rich in Christ. They had spiritual blessings, spiritual treasures that no one could ever take away. They might have looked around them at the beautiful city of Smyrna, more beautiful than Ephesus, more beautiful than Pergamum with that street of gold and wish that they had more money, more resources, but the church was poor. But Christ reminds them on the inside they are rich because what really matters is not the size or the makeup of one's facility. That's not a bad thing. But to never forget it is what is on the inside, the life of the church, the spiritual life of what is happening in the heart of the people in that church. Beauty of a facility, God can be honored by that as in the tabernacle and the temple, but what is more important is the spiritual life of the church. This particular church is only one of two churches in this whole series of seven in which nothing is said negatively about this little church. Christ is pleased with them. He encourages them because of their perseverance and their suffering, both because of persecution and because of poverty. Steve Green writes a song entitled The Faithful. These are the words. The lyrics read, In dark, filthy places, forsaken, forgotten, our brothers and sisters are paying a price. They will not deny him to purchase their freedom. For these are the faithful, the martyrs of Christ, twisted and broken abandoned and beaten, their bodies confined an unseen sacrifice. But deep in their spirits, they know perfect freedom, for they are the ones who have been set free by Christ. The deafening silence, their faithful refusal to doubt or deny in the presence of men They live by his promise before his own father, then in his kingdom, he'll not deny them. He'll not deny them. I think often of what my professor would say to us in class, he would say, for me to live is Christ, the die is gain. And if dying is not gain, then living is not Christ. The question is, are you willing to die for what you believe in? Willing to give your life to suffer because you love God first? God is pleased by these churches who will f- filled with people who love him, who will not deny his name like this little church in Smyrna. What a privilege it is. And few people see it as a privilege. Few people see it as a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. But it is granted to you. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His name's sake. That's been given to you, granted to you to believe, and granted to you to suffer the privilege and honor of suffering for the sake of Christ. That's this church here. What pleases God. Thirdly, the church at Pergamum, faithful to death but tolerant of false teaching, sadly. Faithful to death but tolerant of false teaching. They did not deny Christ, verse 13, but they tolerated false teaching. Pergamum here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
And you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. For these in Pergamum, they didn't deny Christ. Like some churches do today, however, they allowed false teaching to come in. Now, Pergamum was a more prominent city, not as beautiful as Smyrna. Smyrna was a beautiful city, but Pergamum was uh, the, the capital, Asia's capital, for some 250 years or so. And it exists today, actually, in the modern-day city of Bergama, Bergama in Turkey. And that name means parchment, this, this city Pergamum. But just like Smyrna, it was under two particular areas of great temptation, two areas of idolatry. One was all the temples that they also had, just like Smyrna. And the other was that of emperor worship. In fact, the deities that were there, the primary deities were Zeus and Athena, Dionysius and Asclepius, the god of healing. That's that last one. People in in that city would go into the, the temple of Asclepius, or Asclepius, and they would lay there on the ground because they believed, and, and, the, and the temple had all of these snakes, all these snakes that would slither on the ground. And these were non-venomous snakes, and the belief was if you were sick, if you had some sort of ailment, you would go there and you would sleep during the night, and if one of these snakes touched you, you would be healed. That was the belief there. But like Smyrna, they also had a strong, strong, strong doctrine of emperor worship. It was the leader of emperor worship there. It was the first city to have a temple that was dedicated to emperor worship. And what you were required to do as a citizen was that every, every year you would come. All Roman citizens had to come, okay? You're Christian or non-Christian or whatever, you were required to come. And of course, Christians would not do it. But all Roman citizens were commanded to come before the altar, and they would have a pinch of incense that had to be burned in worship. They had a pinch of incense that would be burned in worship, and once they worshipped the emperor, and by, by committing that pinch of incense, they would have to declare that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And after that, they would receive a certificate, a certificate certifying their allegiance to Rome. So you had a little piece of paper or parchment or whatever that would certify you were a citizen of Rome who had committed your, your, your act of worship by declaring Caesar is Lord and by offering incense in worship to the emperor. It's been said that in all of the other cities, it was a danger for citizens once a year if you were caught not doing it, neglected your duty. Whereas in Pergamum, it was so, so ingrained within the whole city that Christians were always in danger of being found out And it was just such a dominant, dominant culture of idolatry, dominant culture of emperor worship. It's believed that that particular phrase of where Satan's throne is refers to all of that cesspool of idolatry that was there. But the Christians who were there commended for holding fast to Christ. You'd hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, verse 13, who was killed among them. There was some sort of incident. There was some sort of the grammar states. There's some sort of incident in which they were tested. And Antipas 
did not capitulate, and he was killed for his faith. We don't know much about him, but he paid the price. He paid the price for holding fast to Christ. Just like the scriptures would say in Matthew 10, 32, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. They held fast to the name of Christ. They held fast and were faithful to Christ, but they were not discerning. They let in false teaching, verse 15, 14 and 15. There were some who held the teaching of Balaam, Now, the teaching of Balaam, Balaam was this prophet for hire, and we find his story in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, because when Israel was coming through the land, when Israel was coming through the land, they had defeated a group of people called the Amorites, and out of fear, there was a king, and this king's name was Balak. He was the king of Moab, and he knew of Balaam. He knew of Balaam, who was a prophet, a prophet for hire who would prophesy, and everything that he prophesied would come true. So he hires this prophet named Balaam, and he goes and takes him to a a place where he can see the nation of Israel, and he tells Balaam, Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. I want you to curse Israel, because I know if you curse Israel, it'll all come true, and Israel's demise will come. Well, We know that no human has that kind of power, and so what happened was that he would try to curse Israel, but out of his mouth would come blessing. Out of his mouth would come blessing. Time and time again, he would try to curse Israel. Balak would get mad at Balaam for trying to, for for blessing Israel, rather than cursing Israel. He would, every time he would bless because God controlled his mouth. He would bless Israel, and finally, what happened? Well, they, they couldn't have Israel cursed by the mouth of Balaam. Balaam counseled with Balak and said, here's what you do. You take a number of your Moabite women, and you go and seduce the men of Israel into sinful behavior, into immorality, into idolatry, and the plan would have worked. Because actually, it's, a number of them did. They were seduced into sin. They became infected with the idolatrous beliefs of the Moabites, and the Moabite women would seduce them into away from God. It would have worked for the entire nation had God not stopped the slide of sin when in Numbers 25, verse 9, God executed 24,000 of them, including many leaders. But this is... What happened here? There were some within this church who were were teaching the the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, verse 14, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And this was an act of worship. This was an act of participation in their worship. That's what it implies. Idolatry and commit acts of immorality. Here, they're condemned for the tolerance of this false teaching. They're condemned for allowing that to come into the church. They thought maybe they could still have a dualistic kind of idea where, oh, maybe I'll be able to take part in this kind of worship and yet serve God. No, it infects the life of the church. And he calls them, verse 16, repent 
or else I am coming to you. Judgment will come quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is frightening when God says to his church, I will come and make war against you. His own church, that he would make war against them. Again, not only was that an issue, some held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They had allowed, they were just kind of a big sponge. And sometimes you find that to be the case. You look at the programs that some churches have, some of the things that they have being taught, and you find this program. And it's not about all the programs, or not about all the systems, and not about letting everybody in, but a discerning church that is biblical is what pleases God. Not the vastness of all of the various options that might have from this perspective to that perspective. Don't be impressed by that. Be impressed by those who love God, who love God like the church at Ephesus, or I should say, who love God unlike the church at Ephesus, who was like the church of Ephesus, who was hardworking, persevering, doctrinally, doctrinally pure, and the church like Smyrna that held fast even in persevering when they're impoverished or suffering, and being like the church perhaps in Pergamum, Pergamum, who didn't deny Christ, but not allowing teaching to come in that would be contrary to what the Scriptures would have. The question for us is, what, what kind of church ought we to be? We ought to be like the things that God commends, that God is pleased with, that God would smile upon that if Jesus were to walk through the doors of that church because His presence, we worship Him and presence of God is here. Does he smile upon the things that we do, the things that are taught, the programs that we have, or does he not? Next week, we'll look at the last of all of those churches, the things that please God within his church. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks, and we desire, Lord, to be a body of believers that pleases you in the things that we do the things that we say. We know, O oh Lord, that many things, many things may be done, but I pray, God, we might do them with the right desire, with the right motive, seeking to bring you honor and glory, which stems out of a heart, Lord, that we desire, that loves you fully and completely. In Jesus' name, amen.